chapter 13 the grace of God grace is a perfection of the divine character which is exercised only towards the elect neither in the Old Testament nor in the New is the grace of God ever mentioned in connection with mankind generally still less with the lower orders of his creatures in this it is distinguished from mercy for the mercy of God is over all his works Psalm 145 verse 9 grace is the sole source from which flows the goodwill love and salvation of God unto his chosen people this attribute of the divine character was defined by Abraham Booth in his helpful book the reign of Christ thus quote it is the eternal and absolute free favor of God manifested in the vouchsafement of spiritual and eternal blessings to the guilty and the unworthy end quote Divine grace is the sovereign and saving favor of God exercised in the bestowment of blessings upon those who have no merit in them and for which no compensation is demanded from them. Nay, more, it is the favor of God shown to those who not only have no positive deserts of their own, but who are thoroughly ill-deserving and hell-deserving. It is completely unmerited and unsought, and is altogether unattracted by anything in or from or by the objects upon which it is bestowed. Grace can neither be bought, earned, nor won by the creature. If it could be, it would cease to be grace. When a thing is said to be of grace, we mean that the recipient has no claim upon it, that it was in no wise due him. It comes to him as pure charity, and at first unasked and undesired. The fullest exposition of the amazing grace of God is to be found in the epistles of the Apostle Paul. In his writings, grace stands in direct opposition to works and worthiness, all works and worthiness of whatever kind or degree. This is abundantly clear from Romans 11, verse 6, and if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. If it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Grace and works will no more unite than an acid and an alkali. By grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. The absolute favor of God can no more consist with human merit than oil, oil and water will fuse into one. See also Romans 4, 4 and 5. There are three principal characteristics of divine grace. First, it is eternal. Grace was planned before it was exercised, purposed before it was imparted. Who hath saved us and called us with a holy, with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. 2 Timothy 1, 9. Secondly, it is free, for none did ever purchase it, being justified freely by his grace. Romans 3.24 Thirdly, it is sovereign, because God exercises it toward and bestows it upon whom he pleases. Even so might grace reign. Romans 5.21 If grace reigns, then it is on the throne, and the occupant of the throne is sovereign. Hence the throne of grace. Hebrews 4.16 just because grace is unmerited favor, it must be exercised in a sovereign manner. Therefore does the Lord declare, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, Exodus 33:19. 19. 
Were God to show grace to all of Adam's descendants, men would at once conclude that he was righteously compelled to take them to heaven as a meet compensation for allowing the human race to fall into sin. But the great God is under no obligation to any of his creatures, least of all to those who are rebels against him. Eternal life is a gift, therefore it can neither be earned by good works nor claimed as a right. Seeing that salvation is a gift, who has any right to tell God on whom he ought to bestow it? It is not that the giver ever refuses this gift to any who seek it wholeheartedly and according to the rules which he has prescribed. No, he refuses none who come to him empty-handed in the way of his appointing. But if out of a world of impenitent and unbelieving rebels, God is determined to exercise his sovereign right by choosing a limited number to be saved, who is wronged? Is God obliged to force his gift on those who value it not? Is God compelled to save those who are determined to go their own way? But nothing more riles the natural man and brings to the surface his innate and inveterate enmity against God than to press upon him the eternality, the freeness, and the absolute sovereignty of divine grace, that God should have formed his purpose from everlasting without in any wise consulting the creature is too abasing for the unbroken heart. That grace cannot be earned or won by any effort of man is too self-emptying for self-righteousness. And that grace singles out whom he, it pleases to be favored objects, or, excuse me, and the, that grace singles out whom it pleases to be its favored objects arouses hot protest from haughty rebels. The clay rises up against the potter and asks, Why hast thou made me thus? A lawless insurrectionist dares to call into question the justice of divine sovereignty. The distinguishing grace of God is seen in saving those people whom he has sovereignly singled out to be his high favorites. By distinguishing, we mean that grace discriminates, making differences, choosing some and passes by others. It was distinguishing grace which selected Abraham from the midst of his idolatrous neighbors and made him the friend of God. It was distinguishing grace which saved publicans and sinners, but said of the religious Pharisees, Let them alone. Matthew 15 and 14. Nowhere does the glory of God's free and sovereign grace shine more conspicuously than in the unworthiness and unlikeliness of its objects. Beautifully was this illustrated by James Hervey in 1751, quote, Where sin has abounded, says the proclamation from the court of heaven, grace doth much more abound. Manasseh was a monster of barbarity, for he caused his own children to pass through the fire and fill Jerusalem with innocent blood. Manasseh was an adept, was an in, in, adept in iniquity for he was not only multiplied and to an extravagant degree his own sacrilegious impieties but he poisoned the principles and perverted the manners of his subjects making them do worse than the most detestable of the heathen idolaters see second chronicles 33 yet through this superabundant grace he is humbled he is reformed and becomes a child of forgiving love an heir of immortal glory Still quoting, Behold, that bitter and bloody persecutor Saul, when breathing out threatenings and bent upon slaughter, he worried the lambs and put to death the disciples of Jesus. The havoc he had committed, the inoffensive 
families he had already ruined were not sufficient to assuage his vengeful spirit. They were only a taste which, instead of glutting the bloodhound, made him more closely pursue the track and more eagerly pant for destruction. He is still a thirst for violence and murder. So eager and insatiable is his thirst that he even breathes out threatening and slaughter. Acts 9.1 His words are spears and arrows, and his tongue a sharp sword. Tis as natural for him to menace the Christians as to breathe the air. Nay, they bled every hour in the purpose, purposes of his rancorous heart. It is only owing to want of power that every syllable he utters, every breath he draws, does not deal out deaths and cause some of the innocent disciples to fall, who, upon the principles of human judgment, would not have pronounced him a vessel of wrath destined to unavoidable damnation, nay, would not have been ready to conclude that if there were heavier chains and a deeper dungeon in the world of woe, they must surely be reserved for such an implacable enemy of true godliness. Yet admire and adore the inexhaustible treasures of grace. This Saul is admitted into the god goodly fellowship of the prophets, is numbered with the noble army of martyrs, and makes a distinguishing figure among the glorious company of the apostles. The Corinthians were flitigious even to a, a proverb, some of them wallowed in such abominable vices and habituated themselves to such outrageous acts of injustice as were a reproach to human nature. Yet even these sons of violence and slaves of sensuality were washed, sanctified, and justified. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. Washed in the precious blood of a dying Redeemer, sanctified by the powerful operations of the Blessed Spirit justified through the infinitely tender mercies of a gracious God. Those who were once the burden of the earth are now the joy of heaven, the delight of angels." End quote. Now the grace of God is manifested in and by and through the Lord Jesus Christ. The law was given by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. John 1.17 This does not mean that God never exercised grace towards any before his Son became incarnate. Genesis 6.8, Exodus 13.19, etc., clearly shows otherwise. But grace and truth were fully revealed and perfect, perfectly exemplified when the Redeemer came to this earth and died for his people upon the cross. It is through Christ, the mediator alone, that the grace of God flows to his elect. Much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ. Much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. So might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5, 15, 17, and 21. The grace of God is proclaimed in the gospel, Acts 20:24, 20, which is to the self-righteous Jew a stumbling block, and to the conceited and philosophizing Greek foolishness. And why so? Because there is nothing whatever in it that is adopted to the gratifying of the pride of man. It announces that unless we are saved by grace, we cannot be saved at all. It declares that apart from Christ, the unspeakable gift of God's grace, the state of every man is desperate, irremediable, and hopeless. 
The gospel addresses men as guilty, condemned, perishing criminals. It declares that the chastest moralist is in the same terrible plight as is the most voluptuous profligate. And the zealous professor with all his religious performances is no better off than the most profane infidel. The gospel contemplates every descendant of Adam as a fallen, polluted, hell-deserving, and helpless sinner. The grace which the gospel publishes is his only hope. All stand before God convicted as transgressors of his holy law, as guilty and condemned criminals who are not merely awaiting sentence, but the execution of sentence already passed upon them, John 3.18 and Romans 3.19. To complain against the partiality of grace is suicidal. If the sinner insists upon bare justice, then the lake of fire must be his eternal portion. His only hope lies in bowing to the sentence which divine justice has passed upon him, owning the absolute righteousness of it, casting himself on the mercy of God and stretching forth empty hands to avail himself of the grace of God now made known to him in the gospel. The third person in the Godhead is the communicator of grace. Therefore, he is denominated the spirit of grace, Zechariah 12.10. God the Father is the fountain of all grace, for he purposed in himself the everlasting covenant of redemption. God the Son is the only channel of grace. The gospel is the publisher of grace. The spirit is bestower. He is the one who applies the gospel in saving power to the soul, quickening the elect while spiritually dead, conquering their rebellious wills, melting their hard hearts, opening their blind eyes, cleansing them from the leprosy of sin. Thus we may say with the late G.S. Bishop, quote, Grace is a provision for men who are so fallen that they cannot lift the acts of justice, so corrupt that they cannot change their own natures, so averse to God that they cannot turn to him, so blind that they cannot see him, so deaf that they cannot hear him, and so dead that he himself must open their graves and lift them into resurrection. End quote. Stillwater's Revival Books is now located at PuritanDownloads.com. It's your worldwide online Reformation home for the very best in free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, MP3s, and videos. For much more information on the Puritans and Reformers, including the best free and discounted classic and contemporary books, MP3s, digital downloads, and videos, please visit Stillwater's Revival Books at PuritanDownloads.com. Stillwater's Revival Books also publishes the Puritan Hard Drive, the most powerful and practical Christian study tool ever produced. All thanks and glory be to the mercy, grace, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for this remarkable and wonderful new Christian study tool. The Puritan Hard Drive contains over 12,500 of the best Reformation books, MP3s, and videos ever gathered onto one portable Christian study tool. An extraordinary collection of Puritan, Protestant, Calvinistic, Presbyterian, Covenanter, and Reformed Baptist resources. It's fully upgradable and it's small enough to fit in your pocket. The Puritan hard drive combines an embedded database containing many millions of records with the most amazing and extraordinary custom Christian search and research software ever created. The Puritan hard drive has been produced to assist you in the fascinating and exhilarating spiritual, intellectual, familial, ecclesiastical, and societal adventure that is living the Christian life. It has been specifically designed so that you might more faithfully know, 
serve, and love the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as to help you to do all you can to bring glory to His great name. If you want to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then the Puritan hard drive is for you. Visit PuritanDownloads.com today for much more information on the Puritan hard drive and to take advantage of all the free and discounted Reformation and Puritan books, MP3s, and videos that we offer at Stillwater's Revival Books.